0: Technologies are these double-edged swords. So if you take a technology, and you don't think much about it. You just say, I don't know, this seems useful. Everyone's using it. I'm not really going to think much about it. I'm just going to bring it into my life. I'm going to sign up for Slack. I'm going to sign up for Twitter, whatever. They have a way of pushing you into places to get far from your values. They have a way of causing harm. At the other hand, if you're really clear about what you value in your life and also into your business, and you put tech to use intentionally, like this thing is really important. And here's a tool that can help me do this thing better you can get a lot of value out of technology. So your life is a lot better off than if that technology didn't exist. And so the whole push for minimalism is intention, intention, intention. Technology deployed for a very specific thing you care about in a very structured way can give you really big benefits. Technology brought into your life casually or used without rules or consideration has a way of sort of metastasizing its
1: footprint in your cognitive life and makes things worse. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today I bring you Cal Newport. Do you get motivation, clarity, or inspiration from the Success Through Failure podcast? Then don't be so selfish. Share the motivation with your friends. Go to com slash share, and there you'll find a simple page with just three buttons. One to share the podcast on Twitter, one for Facebook, and one for LinkedIn. Click any of the buttons, and you'll have the option to either share the pre-written tweet or message or rewrite your own. That's it. Super simple. It'll just take a few seconds unless you're selfish and you want to keep all of this awesome inspiration to yourself. Go ahead and let your friends in on the secret. They'll thank you. And if nothing else, you'll have something cool to talk about the next time you get together. Just go to com slash share. If you've never heard of Cal Newport, maybe you've not seen him on social media, maybe that's why, but he's written some amazing books, best-selling books. He writes for the New York Times and the Washington Post and, and lots of other media outlets, and he's just uh, he's an incredible writer, and his focus is really on how to do your best work. And he's written books called Deep Work, another one called Digital Minimalism. And they are books about how to, how to get the most out of yourself and how to really get into a place where you can do your best possible work. And hint, hint, it's not by checking email after every task that you do guilty is charged right here. It's not about checking text messages constantly throughout the day and being on social media, but it's about getting into an undistracted state where you can provide the world your best value. And he talks really about uh, why that's important and how it's important and where he sort of sees technology going in terms of helping us be productive. So let me give you a little bit from his his, uh, official bio. Cal Newport is the author of six books, including most recently the New York Times bestseller, Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, by the way, in this interview, he reveals the title of his next upcoming book, and the title is going to blow you away. You're going to want to like, pre-order it as soon as you hear the title, so I'm not going to spoil that for you. Continuing with his bio, his work has been published in over 25 languages, uh, been featured in many major publications, like I said, in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the New Yorker, Washington Post, Economist. In 2016, he published Deep Work, which is where I first heard of him, which argued that our ability to focus without distractions becoming increasingly rare, due primarily to distracting technology, and at the same time, it's becoming increasingly valuable as the knowledge economy becomes more cognitively demanding. And As a result, those individuals and organizations who cultivate their ability to perform deep work will enjoy a major competitive advantage. So Cal Newport is also in his spare time a professor at Georgetown University, where he actually does the research, and he can back everything that he's talking about up here with science. So let's get to my episode with Cal. But as usual, if you don't have time to listen to the entire episode, or if you hear something you like but you don't have a chance to write it down, make sure you go over to Jimharshawjr.com/slash/action and grab your free copy of the Action Plan from this episode and every episode. So let's get to my interview with Cal Newport. Cal, welcome to the show. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for making time to come on. You've never had a social media account. Is that right? Yes. I mean, it turns out that's allowed.
0: <laughs> that's legal <laughs> so, in these, these days? Yeah, it is. It actually, there isn't a statute that makes that illegal. So yeah, I think I'm the only one under the <laughs> age of 75 for whom that's probably right. true.
1: Right? Why is that? Tell us. I mean, what? I mean, you're you've you've written books. Uh, you are. Uh, I guess you would be still considered an influencer. Right? I mean, you've had these best-selling books. Why no social media account?
0: You know, I, I have to go back through the mist of history to try to remember why I didn't exactly sign up. I mean, what, what I can reconstruct is that Facebook arrived during my senior year of college. And I do remember people signing up and I do remember thinking that's not for me. So there, there was some reason I can't quite remember why I didn't sign up at first, but then that gave me a little bit of distance. Then I began to observe the way that people's relationship with these tools changed and how much time they were spending on it and how much influence it had over their, their mood. I was sort of like an anthropologist on some, you know, South Pacific Island in the early 20th century. I felt like that. <laughs> and as I watched it from afar, the more my conviction grew, originally it was just, eh, I don't think this is for me. And it hardened into, oh, this is absolutely not for me. And so it just, over time, a casual decision hardened into something much more concrete.
1: Since then, we've had uh, just a, a boom of technologies come to our fingertips, email and Zoom and social media and text messaging and all of this technology that is supposed to optimize our lives and help us be uber productive is it working
0: well first of all we should be clear that some of those technologies have no intention of helping you optimize your life or, or be more productive i would say social media in particular we need to highlight mm-hmm. because social media has none of your best interest in mind the, the, the whole business model behind social media is we need you to do this instead of other things to the extent possible And there was actually a a great transformation that happened right around the 2010 to 2012 period. This is when Facebook was just getting ready to go public. And they completely reinvented their content model. So it was no longer about a wall where you publish things about yourself and then you would see what your friends had published about themselves. They got rid of that whole model and changed it to this never-ending stream, this newsfeed stream of algorithmic optimized article selections that hook right into your brain and make it impossible to stop scrolling. And by doing so... They retrained us, essentially, to think of the phone not as a tool to be more productive, not as a tool to get things done, but as this constant companion that we looked at all the time. So when we think about this phone nowadays as a source of distraction, that's actually could be laid at the feet of the social media giants who re-engineered it into this to try to get their revenue numbers up. And so we, we still think about this thing as a tool the way it was originally pitched, but really it's turning us into a tool for these profit-making machines. We so have to be really careful about... Where does this relationship with these devices come from? Because it's not as, uh, say, self-directed or useful or pragmatic as we often think it is.
1: And so basically, it's, it's directing us to do the opposite of what you say is our most valuable work, which is deep work. So tell us what is deep work and, and why is it important? So
0: deep work is my term for activities that you do that are cognitively demanding. So you actually have to think hard about what you're doing uh, and that you're doing without distraction. So you're not switching context. You're not glancing at an inbox. You're not glancing at your phone. And my argument about deep work is that in knowledge work, as it gets more competitive, as it gets more complicated, deep work is what really moves the needle. These are the efforts that really produce new value and therefore the efforts that really matter. And that when we don't recognize that, we accidentally fill our time more and more with what I call shallow work tasks, which are fine. Logistical administrative tasks to keep the lights on, but they don't move the needle. So, we end up sort of accidentally holding back our careers or accidentally holding back our businesses because we're putting our efforts into the, the cognitive activities that give us a lot lower returns.
1: So, what are some examples of deep work? What does that mean? What, what, what are specific things that you have done or, or others can do yeah. that is considered deep work?
0: Well, I would say anytime you're giving concentrated attention to something that's difficult and producing new value with your brain, you're doing deep work. So, for example, if you're programming a computer, if you're coming up with a new business strategy, if you're writing a chapter of a book, if you're in a, a brainstorm meeting with your team trying to figure out like what's our new strategy for the Q1 quarters, anything where it's you uh, applying your brain to produce new value in a highly concentrated manner—that's deep work. Shallow work, I just say, is everything else. <laughs> so yeah. I just described as anything that's not that.
1: How do you get into deep work? I mean, we're, we live in this world. Where we're so distracted, you know. I'm sitting here at my desk, and, and I was it was interesting. I, I'm preparing for this interview, and this morning I'm getting. I find myself keep getting distracted, and I turned on like uh, this notifications thing on my MacBook Pro, and I'm like, it was a kind of a new new thing I hadn't used before, and I'm like, this is terrible. I turned it back off, and I'm getting notifications on my phone, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I gotta turn all these notifications off, and I do a, a fair fair job at some of this, but. I mean, do you have tactics and advice for, for people to get into deep work? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good point because I think our business
0: lives in general are very fragmented. We jump from emails to meetings, back to the emails on the Zoom, back to emails. There's constantly text messages going on. There's Slack going on. So we've, we've created a working world that is not at all conducive for depth. And so in order to actually put aside time regularly for something like deep work, you have to fight for it. It's not going to be something casual. It's unlikely that you're going to just be going through your day and say, hey, you know what? I don't have much to do. <laughs> and like, I'm in the mood to concentrate. So some of the things I recommend is that you actually schedule deep work on your calendar, like you would a meeting, like you would an appointment and protect it the same way. You know, If you had a dentist appointment on your calendar and someone said, hey, can you jump on a Zoom call? You say, well, I have an appointment till 11. We'll have to do it afterwards. If you're in the dentist chair, you're not looking at your email. And so that simple idea of my deep work, I put it on my calendar and I treat it like any other meeting or appointment. That's crucial because deep work is not something that most people are going to casually stumble upon during their day. It really does have to be fought for.
1: Yeah. Well, I mentioned to you before we hit record that uh, a friend of mine, does this zoom focus call. So we're leveraging technology to actually force deep work. And it's just once a week. And he invites a few of my fellow clients, Pathfinders we call them, and we jump on there and everybody states their their purpose, what they're going to be working on for the next hour. And it's not checking emails. It's not just something on your to-do list, but it's something of high value. It's not urgent, but it's important. And it's something that you can really create value in your life. And and so we just do this and it's a level of accountability where we're all on a Zoom call and you shut off your microphone, but you're not allowed to check your cell phone. You're not allowed to check email. You're just dedicating this time to deep work, to focus. Yeah. Um, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Sort of creating this structured time where, where you can work on the, the, the high value work? Yeah, exactly. And in fact,
0: I am surprised that we don't see this being built in more into the culture of businesses. I mean, you could really multiply the value that people are producing in the typical office environment if you actually protected and cultivated a culture of undistracted, concentrated time. Now, it doesn't mean the other stuff shouldn't happen. Email shouldn't happen, meetings shouldn't happen. But well, There should be clear divisions. I mean, I always argue that we should be managing for depth. If I'm a manager, I should know, you know, you should be your optimal amount of deep work is you really should be doing three hours or four hours a day. That's going to produce the most value for our organization. How much are you doing? Only one. Like, that's a problem. We need to change our culture. We need to try to fix this issue. And I'm always surprised that we haven't concentrated more on that, though I will say, I think the tides are shifting. I mean, Microsoft's office, their suite, the productivity suite, including Outlook, now has the term deep work integrated into their software. They've added new tools to Outlook to try to help people consolidate and protect what they call concentration time. And in the actual software interface itself, it explains like this is to help preserve time for deep work, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a tide shifting. And I sometimes use the term neuroproductivity to talk about this because essentially it is productivity that takes into account the reality of how the human brain works right? So we're actually thinking like the human brain produces the best value when it can actually concentrate on something without context shifting. And so the human brain, just looking at the neurons, the way it functions, the way the psychologists and neuroscientists tell us the brain functions does not do well if you have to jump from one thing to another.
1: So if I'm doing deep work if I'm, I'm working on something, maybe it's maybe even if it's just crafting a meaningful letter or, or an email or I'm working on some project and then my phone beeps. And if I just do a quick glance over And I see that it's from a friend and I don't need to really respond to it. And then it can come back to my work. Is that a problem? Yeah, that's killer. And it's something we get wrong.
0: We think the issue is multitasking. Hmm. So we think the issue is I shouldn't have my inbox open at the same time that I'm writing at the same time that I'm on my phone. And we figured out in the early 2000s, okay, multitasking does not work. And so we stopped doing it and we all patted ourselves on the back. But it turns out that context switching is just as damaging. So if I'm focusing on, let's say for this example, I'm writing a memo and it's difficult. If I jump over and look at my inbox, even if I only glance at it for 15 seconds, when I come back, I'm going to be operating at a reduced cognitive capacity. That context switch, what happens is I looked at my email and saw all of those messages and most of them I could not answer, but they're from other people and some are urgent. Your brain begins this complex process of switching context, which means it's suppressing some neural networks and it's amplifying other neural networks. And then you wrench it back to the other thing. And then it tries like a halting in a cartoon where you try to stop and you go sliding into the wall and your brain's like, Oh wait, no, we're not trying to do that. Let's reamplify these networks. Let's resuppress these networks. And you get a cognitive jumble. You can't think very well. And so we think we're single tasking, but what we're really doing is these quick checks every 10 or 15 minutes of inboxes, browser tabs, and phones. And it puts us in a completely reduced cognitive state. And so that's why I really emphasize deep work is not just cognitively demanding work. It's work you do with none of those context shifts.
1: So what do you think about the whole open floor plan, open environment, open offices that a lot of trendy, cool companies are doing? Is that hindering deep work? Yeah, it's a real problem. Now, I think most companies did
0: this not for any actual type of productivity gains. I mean, they will sometimes tell stories about serendipitous interaction. You run into what other people are doing. Uh, That's mainly just window dressing. Uh, We actually have good studies that show that when you move to an open office, people interact with each other less. Hmm. Because it's noisy, and if I talk to you, everyone's going to hear it. So people actually interact in person less and do more email when you move them into an open office. Wow. Your use of the term trendy is appropriate because I think that's what's really going on here. Is it signaling? So you, as a company, are trying to signal to your potential employees or your investors, we're disruptive, we're cutting edge. So it's a rational move, right? Because getting investment and getting top employees is important for your company. But I think that's the entire function of open offices. It's just trying to signal to people what type of company you are. From a productivity perspective, it's a bit of a disaster.
1: What about people who work in an office and and maybe they want to have an open door policy or, you know, they just work, you know, where I, my, prior career, um, I worked in an office and my door was open and it was nice because people would come walking by and you'd chat with them. But man, I swear I got nothing done. And then it was funny if I was working around five o'clock, if I lost track of time, all of a sudden I'd look up and it's like 5.30, 6 o'clock. And I'm like, I've just been in this deep work mode for the past hour. What's going on? What time is it? And why, why am I not being distracted? And I realized, oh, everybody's gone. Um, you know, I've just gotten three hours of work done in the past hour. I mean, do you recommend that people close their door? Do you recommend that people go elsewhere and maybe change their environment to get in some deep work time?
0: Yeah. Well, you need a, what we could call a multi-status door policy or something like this. I mean, so if we imagine we're in that proverbial setup of a manager, an executive in an office, to have a door could be crucial. Where it's if it's open, I want to talk to people. And if it's closed, I don't want to be bothered. And having that sort of bimodal status I think is crucial if you expect someone to do cognitively demanding work. And so you can simulate that in many different environments. In open offices, people do this with either lights or headphones. So they signal to people around them, my door is closed. Virtually, we need something similar, right? And I think there's an increasing number of tools that are helping to do this, but it's a big problem with the current virtual environment is that we can't see a door, we can't see the earphones on, and we can't see the light. So we just assume, why aren't you answering my email? Why aren't you answering my Slack? Why aren't you answering my text message? It would be convenient if you would do it right away. And so I think we're having a productivity regression in these recent pandemic style months because we've moved to a mode of work where we don't even have those informal heuristic cues anymore to try to gain some cognitive freedom.
1: Yeah. Do you have advice on that? And, and what have you been seeing in your research and in your studies around COVID? I mean, around the shutdown and, and working from home? Because I don't, I don't think this is a short-term thing. I think a lot of people are going to be doing more telecommuting, doing more working from home, even after all this is over. Is this a better work environment for some? Is it, is it better in some ways and harder in, in other ways? I mean, I think a lot of people have kids home now um, and there, there are more distractions around. Uh, what have you been seeing and what is working for people?
0: Yeah, well, I, I went deep into this topic because I, I wrote this piece for The New Yorker a couple of months ago where I, it was about remote work, the history of remote work and what's happening now in an age of COVID with it. And basically, my conclusion is remote work could be much better for a lot of people, but it's not right now. Now take out of the equation the kids issue. I mean, no work from home is ever going to be great when your kids are at home and they can't be at school <laughs> or you don't have childcare, right? So we all accept that. So let's, let's take that off the table. Let's go forward into the future enough where, okay, that issue's off the table. Uh, the big problem we've seen with the shift, the sort of haphazard shift to 100% remote work is that we're very unstructured. And so the, the issue with knowledge work in the office is that we have an unstructured approach to it where we basically work things out on the fly email Slack. Let me stop by your office. Let me grab you in the hallway. Uh, So it's a very free form approach we have to knowledge work right now. That doesn't work well when you go completely remote. And so remote work could succeed, but my argument is for it to succeed, you have to have a lot more structure to how the various processes and systems in your organization run. And I point to software developers as the one example of an office-based job that has very successfully transitioned to remote work. There's very large companies that are completely remote in the software sector. And they've been so for years. And the reason they were able to do it so successfully is that software developers have a very structured approach to their work. They use these agile methodologies where they have shared boards on which everyone, what you're working on, its status is on this board. Tasks are assigned to people in a centralized and synchronous way. Like, okay, I'm gonna put this on your plate. I can see what's already on your plate. I just want you to work on this one thing until you're done. There's a very coherent and structured approach to how we actually get our work done. And because of that, they could go remote, no problem. But if you work in an office where it's just, we email, we Slack, we grab people in the hallway, it's just meetings, I swing by your office, that doesn't translate to remote very well. You end up in just a chaotic scrum of back and forth messages and hastily called Zoom meetings.
1: And I can imagine there are some listeners thinking, well, that's too much structure. Communication can't have structure. There has to be you know, just an open environment where I can call somebody or text somebody or Slack somebody whenever I need information. What do you say to that person who think that structuring communication would just be, would be a hindrance? Well, that, that freestyle mode of working, which I dub the
0: hyperactive hive mind in my work, that functions really good. It's very natural. It's the way we're wired to cooperate. It works up to about three people. So if there's about three of us working on a problem, that's the best way to do it. Hey, you go over there, what's going on? Can you see that information? Hey, are you doing this? You know, put us in the same room. It's the same way we used to hunt mastodons on the paleolithic savanna. It works mm. great. That's our instinct. You go to a hundred people, 200 people, 700 person organization, that instinct completely breaks apart because all this back and forth, asynchronous communication doesn't scale. And then before you know it, all you're doing is servicing all of these ongoing back and forth, slow drip conversations, and that becomes your whole day. And so now you're talking about work for most of your time, as opposed to actually doing the work. And and the thing I would point out, and this was, I I wrote this op-ed about this earlier this year for the times that if you look at the industrial sector, the evolution of the industrial sector, They went through this early in the 20th century, where they had this shift from the ways of building cars, for example, that was convenient and natural and flexible, and everyone understood how it worked. It was called a craft method. We just stand around a car and build it in place. They had to switch from that to something that was much more structured, had much more overhead, was a huge pain for everybody involved, the continuous motion assembly line, but it produced cars 100x faster. And so knowledge work has to go through its own, essentially, assembly line moment where we move away from the flexibility, convenience, and simplicity of just, hey, we're all plugged in the communication channels, rock and roll. And we move on to more structured approaches to work like we see in software development. And it's going to be a pain. It's going to require more overhead. We're going to hit hard edges and something's going to get dropped because I couldn't just grab your attention, but we're going to produce 10 or 100 X more value per time spent. And I think that, that revolution is inevitable.
1: Do you feel like that's happening now?
0: I hope so. I have a book coming out in March that's like really hammering this point. It's called A World Without Email.
1: Yeah. and I, really I love that title, it. by the way. I mean, I just, I fascinate about that world.
0: Well, this is, this is the whole point of this book is it's about the, you know, this is, I believe, inevitable. I would say in the last two years, I have seen significantly more signs and examples and chatter of this thinking in the world of knowledge work than I did in the 10 years before that. So I do think, and I don't know if the COVID remote work experience is pushing it, because, hey, going completely remote without structure, again, is just chaos. And so people are thinking, wait, how do we work? Maybe we should get more critical about it. The last couple of years, I've just been seeing a lot more attention paid to this issue, where like five, six years ago, people just thought a book called The World Without Email was like a dystopian fantasy novel.
1: (laughs) So things I think are changing. How do you envision it, say, 10 years from now or 20 years from now? Do you do you envision you know, email being totally different? Do you feel like there will be more streamlined communications or fewer communication tools? I mean, what, do you, what direction do you think we're headed?
0: Well, so I, I take a process focus instead of a tool-based focus. So like what I expect to see in 10 years is that jobs are going to be more bespoke and more specialized. So, okay, I do this for this organization. Uh, there's a very specific type of thing I do. And there's pretty clear processes about how it happens, you know, how the information comes in. I spend large portions of my time not engaged in ad hoc communication, but actually working really hard on the thing that I do really well. So I think we're seeing more of that. I think there's going to be more artificial intelligence involved. I mean, a lot of people don't understand the degree to which the business investment in artificial intelligence right now is being made to basically take a lot of this administrative logistical wrangling off our plates. The things that we spend so much time doing, especially things that aren't directly connected to our jobs, that's a huge bit of the American GDP is wasted or subdued because we're trying to set up a meeting time or get information about our timesheets to the whatever. So AI is going to take a lot of that off of our plates. And so I don't think it's about the tools. There'll be plenty of uh, network-related communication tools. The email protocols will be around, Slack-style protocols will be around, there'll be a lot of more bespoke project management type suites like Basecamp, for example. Uh, I think that will all be around. But it's not going to be about what tool do we use instead of email. It's going to be what is our working role is going to look like. And this notion of the generalist that like we plug in, we give you an email address tied to your name that everybody uses for everything from the parking, you know, like the people doing the parking passes to your boss, to your clients, to uh, the HR department, and, and you just plug into this email inbox and just rock and roll. That's going to be a thing of the past. It's going to be a much more structured workday. You spend a lot more time actually producing things that you know how to produce well with much less distraction. And I think people are going to be more satisfied. And I think the amount of value the sector, the knowledge sector, is going to be able to produce is going to significantly increase.
1: The the real life example that I've experienced of being able to disconnect and really streamline my own communications is has been just amplified since I've been working in my own business and doing my own thing. It's like I can I can control a lot of this, and I know a lot of folks can't. And you know, Cal, you're talking about in the future how it's going to look, but I encourage people to really think about how can you start incorporating this into your world now, And, and and think about the process. I mean, like you said, the tools as many tools there are now and more, but really think about the process that's going to help you be a digital minimalist or at least minimize more than you are now uh, and get into more deep work.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll just say briefly, one of the things I recommend to people now is that, okay, if you're at an organization that does not yet have these processes or systems in place that, that get you out of just email all day, you can put your own process and systems in place and email. Okay. Maybe people are still contacting you via email. But you can be moving that information immediately out of your inbox and into much more structured systems. So, like for example, one of the roles I have at my university right now is I'm, I'm the director of the graduate program for our department, which is a very kind of classic management type position with lots of issues and fires and emails coming in from students. This type of thing, I use a Trello board that has different columns for all sorts of different types of statuses. So here's things I'm waiting to hear back from someone on. Here's things I don't need to tackle now. Here's things I don't really know what this represents. I have to spend time actually trying to unpack this. Here's things to discuss at my next meeting with my program manager. Here's something to discuss at my next meeting with my department chair, et cetera. And everything that comes into my inbox gets transformed into a card, into a Trello board, where now it's much more structured and I can see the whole universe of my obligations and not just be diving into a email inbox. Now to work with my graduate program manager when we get a lot of emails from students we started also using an IT style ticketing system. Now the people emailing us have no idea we're not making them use our system or jump through any hoops but if a student has a question this thing is going into a ticketing system where it's going to have a status and can be assigned to different people we can add notes to it and pin files we can really quickly see here's all of the emails that we owe a response on what their status is who's working on it right. So you can put your own systems into place even before the rest of your organization is doing the same thing. And it can make a big difference.
1: So you wrote a book called Digital Minimalism, but you're not saying you shouldn't use technology. You're using technology. You're using it in a way that helps streamline your life and streamline your communications. And you're, just, you're using it in ways that will allow you to, to have more control. I mean, that's the basic
0: idea behind digital minimalism, is that technologies are these double-edged swords, So if you take a technology and you don't think much about it, you just say, I don't know, this seems useful, everyone's using it. I'm not really going to think much about it. I'm just going to bring it into my life. I'm going to sign up for Slack. I'm going to sign up for Twitter, whatever. They have a way of pushing you into places to get far from your values. They have a way of causing harm. At the other hand, if you're really clear about what you value in your life and also into your business, and you put tech to use intentionally, like this thing is really important. And here's a tool that can help me do this thing better. You can get a lot of value out of technology. So your life is a lot better off than if that technology didn't exist. And so the whole push for minimalism is intention, intention, intention. Technology deployed for a very specific thing you care about in a very structured way can give you really big benefits. Technology brought into your life casually or used without rules or consideration has a way of sort of metastasizing its footprint in your cognitive life and makes things worse. And so that's your choice. You really don't have the option of just passively letting tech come into your life. You are going to get pushed around, but if you grab it and take control of it, it can make your life much better. So it's a much different than like a Luddite philosophy that thinks that the technology itself is a source of harm. Minimalists say, no, no, it's people lacking intention that causes harm. People who casually let technology into their life. It's that casualness that loss, that lack of intention. That's what's causing the harm, not the tool itself.
1: For the listeners, I want you to hit rewind on the podcast right now and just listen to that last minute or minute and a half of what Cal said, because that really crystallizes everything here. It's about, it's about how you use it. It's about how you bring technology into your lives, how you deploy it in your life. Because if there's intentionality behind it, you can really use it to create a, a richer life in a lot of ways. If, if you let it drift into your life, then you're going to struggle with it and it's going to cause you a lot of distractions. And this comes down to uh, again, for the listeners, you've heard me say this, but a productive pause, that short period of focused reflection around specific questions that leads to clarity of action and peace of mind. And Cal, that's not maybe something you haven't heard, but like this is something that I've sort of coined this phrase out of these habits that so many of my guests have, have said that have led them to success. It's never doing the thing, it's always hitting the pause button and saying, wait a second, you know is there a better way to do this? Wait a second, is there a, a better way to go about my life, whether it's around technology or relationships or anything else? It's hitting that pause button. So I encourage the listeners to, to think about that. Go back a couple of minutes now in this episode and re-listen to that part because that's really it. That crystallizes everything there, Cal. And so can you tell me about a habit for you that, that specifically some kind of habit that you most credit for your success? Because you've written these amazing books. Um, you're widely recognized. You don't even have a social media following because you're not on social media, but but you have a huge following and, and people buying your books and you're, you're writing for a lot of different publications. What habits or what, maybe is there one key habit that you've done over the years that you most credit for your success? Well, one thing I push a lot is
0: multi-scale planning, right? And and this goes back to what you were talking about with the productive pause. It goes back to what we're talking about with intentionality. I plan on three scales. So I have the quarterly scale. I might be talking about, let's say the whole fall and I have a plan. Like what am I working on in the fall? What's important? Is it, okay, I'm trying to get my manuscript done for this book. There's these academic papers I want to write. Uh, Whatever it is at the quarterly level, I have a high level plan. It's written down in a text file, no fancy structure, but just this is what I'm working at. Uh, then I have a weekly plan. That's the next scale. So when I start my week, I say, okay, what am I doing this week? What are the big rocks? What days have a lot going on? What days don't, you know, what am I going to have to get done early? If I'm looking ahead and seeing that Thursday and Friday are a real mess, then, then I can see in my weekly plan that, okay, Monday is going to be my chance to get out ahead of this. So you're looking at the weekly scale and moving the pieces
1: around. When then, do you do that? Do you mind if I ask the, the weekly one, do you do that on like Sunday night or Monday morning or Friday after, at the end of the workday?
0: either Sunday night or Monday morning. That's what I would recommend. Uh, and it takes a little while. And, and I think you have to be okay with that. It can take an hour to 90 minutes because often when you're doing the weekly plan, you're tying up loose ends as well. So you want to hit your week fresh. So you're sort of emptying out the remnants of your inbox. You're tying up loose threads. You're getting rid of very quick actions you can get done with. So it could take an hour to 90 minutes. But then you're starting your week from a blank slate. So it's worth it. And again, the weekly plan... Text file, right? No magic system, no magic software. Just, just write this thing out. Then every day, this is the daily plan, the lowest scale. I'm a huge advocate of what I call time block planning, to the extent that I actually have a planner coming out in November called the time block planner, because so many of my readers do this and we're all tired of pan formatting generic notebooks that I <laughs> actually have a, a custom planner coming out. But this is the height of intention. So you look at your day. And you don't do what most people do. What most people do is they approach their day with what I call the list-based reactive method, which means the way I'm going to work today is I'm going to largely react to things that are incoming, like emails, and occasionally step away from that and look at some list and try to choose some things from the list to work on. And I'll feel very busy and I'll have plenty to do. And I just hope by the end of the day that you're like, hey, I've made some good progress. Time block planning is the opposite. You say, okay, I'm going to give every minute of my day a job. What am I doing from 9 to 9.30? Okay, what about 9.30 to 11 before this meeting? This is what I'm going to work on. Then I have this meeting, and then that's when I'm going to do lunch. And then I can put an hour aside to work on this project. And then here's an email block. Every minute is given a job. You take the available time in your day, and you move that around like a chess master on the chessboard, trying to figure out the configuration that's going to get the most out of what's actually available. And if you get knocked off your plan, that's fine. The next time you get a chance, you just cross out the rest of the plan, move right next to it and fix your plan for the rest of the day. Right. And if you get knocked off that next time you get a chance, move right next to it, fix the plan for the rest of the day, right? The goal is not, I get a gold star. If I can hit the plan, I created eight 30 in the morning without any changes by eight o'clock at night. The key is to always have intention about what comes next, even if that changes. And I got to tell you, when people do these three things, so I see the big picture for this quarter, all right, now I see what's going on this week. So I can make smart decisions about generally what to do on each day. And then each day I'm trying to make the most of the time I have available. It's a pain, but I see two X to three X improvement in productivity. So when people actually measure the things that matter in their job, they see a two to three X improvement when they start doing this. And again, it's hard. I mean, it is easier just to open up your inbox and rock and roll and occasionally look at your to-do list. I mean, it's easy to be busy. Mm -hmm. It's easy just to be doing stuff all day, but if you want to move the needle, you know, you want to produce the things that's impressive. This has been my secret is I've been doing this multi-scale planning. I'm religious about it and it's a pain and it completely amplifies what I'm able to get done.
1: You're married with children. If you do it on a Sunday night, is that hard? Is that something you have to work into your family schedule? Do you wait till the kids go to bed? That sort of thing?
0: Yeah, you got to schedule it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I got to take it seriously. Like, okay, I got to go put aside, I need time later today to work on this. And it's a non-trivial, non-trivial task. But on the flip side, when you're doing this type of plans, you control every minute of your day, your family gets a lot more of your time because now you're saying, what am I doing today? Here's how I'm going to do it. You're getting the most out of your day. You can have really clear end at this point, really clear shutdown. And now I'm available. When you have a weekly plan that fits into a quarterly plan and a daily plan that fits into that weekly plan, when you shut down, you can shut down in a way that if you don't, you're there in the evening You're with your kids and in the back of your mind, it's, oh my God, did I forget this? Am i making progress on this. Maybe I need to check my email. What's going on? And you're a lot less present. So this yeah. structure actually allows you to live the rest of your life with a lot less constraints.
1: Mm, man, beautiful. That's gold. And, and like you said, this doesn't always work perfectly. You set out with the plan, but sometimes things come up and you have to shift things around. So there's failure built into this. And I want to ask you about failure because Cal, you've written all these best-selling books and, and you've had all this success. Does everything come easy for you? Have you ever failed? Has there ever been a time where you've failed and you've had setbacks and you've had the self-doubt that comes with that and you've worked through it?
0: Yeah, it happens all the time. So in my writing life, for example, you know, I started writing at a young age. I signed my first book contract at 21. And I was writing my first books as a, as a college undergraduate. So I I was working my way up in the world of writing. I was starting by writing books for students. And then I got my first break. Like, okay, here's going to be my first hardcover idea book. And it was called So Good They Can't Ignore You. Came out in 2012. And I got, at least for me, it was an advance that was five times larger than what I'd gotten for those student books. I was like, okay, here we go. I've made it. I'm going to do hardcover, hardcover idea books. I got a great idea. Like Now my career is going to take off. All right didn't do what they thought it was going to do out of the gate. So then I turn around a couple of years later to sell them deep work. They paid me less for it. Hmm. So I actually went backwards from what they had offered for uh, So wow. Good They Can't Ignore You for deep work. They said, look, this is what we're going to do and we're not going to, going to do any better. And so I, I had thought that, okay, I jumped up to this level with So Good They Can't Ignore You. Now we're just going to keep jumping up, jumping up, deep work. They paid less. There was very little publicity or promotion going on. It was, you know, it wasn't even in a lot of Barnes and Nobles, Uh, so it had fallen back down again. But I still went after it, anyways. I just like, look, the idea is the idea. I think So Good the Kangaroo was a great idea, and I think it it will sell more even if it didn't catch on. And I think Deep Work is a great idea, and I'm going to write a great book even if it's a smaller release. And you know, Deep Work has sold a million copies, Mm. and now it's taken a lot of years, but So Good picked up, made back its advance and, and, and did really well. So, you know, I I think this was definitely, that was definitely a low point. Like, well, am I moving backwards? Hmm. And I tried to deal with it by just saying, focus on the process, focus on the quality, the other stuff will
1: come. Man, that's amazing. So for the listener, I want you to reflect on this in your own life. Is there a time when you, you achieve some modicum of success and then you felt yourself going backwards and maybe inside your head, you're thinking, ah, oh, maybe that was a fluke. Maybe I'm really just not good enough. Or maybe that was just uh, you know, I'm a one hit wonder, but, but you had, and you had to work through that Cal. And I want the listener to understand, like, you'll have to work through things like that as well. And that's normal on the path to success. So thank you for sharing that Cal. Yeah. For the listener who's bought in, they say, okay, I get it. I'm in can you recommend an action item, something they can do in the next 24 to 48 hours? And by the way, I would recommend buying either digital minimalism or deep work for starters, but anything else in addition to that, Cal? Well, I'm I'm gonna give
0: two pieces of advice because I just wanna draw a separation between your working life and your life outside of work because I think both of those are very important and I write a lot about both of those. So I will give one piece of advice for each that you can do in the next 24 hours. So for the world of work, try time block planning tomorrow. Get a notebook, put the hours down the side, eight, nine, 10, 11, block out the time, put in all your meetings, block that out first, and then block out everything else that remains. Assign particular things to those times. Leave yourself plenty of room. So if you draw this as a column, do it on the left side of the page, leave yourself plenty of room because when you need to fix your plan, you can just move over to the next column. And then when you need to fix that plan, you can move over to the next column. Try it. I mean, your day is going to feel more intense but the amount you get done is going to surprise you. In your life outside of work, the action item I'm going, to, I'm going to suggest is take off of your phone every application in which someone makes money off of your time or attention or data every time you click on it. <laughs> and I'm not even asking you to quit these services yet. I'm sure like your audiences really need to know what you have to say and you can do it on your laptop, you can do it on your desktop but make your phone no longer a source of default distraction when the mood hits you. And it will completely change your relationship with these tools into something much more functionalist. I mean, this is pure digital minimalism. You do not want these tools to exist as a default source of distraction. You want them to exist as tools in your toolbox that you take down when you have a job you want to do. You know, I'm going to take the Instagram tool out of my toolbox because I have a production schedule for content that has to do with this product I'm selling, then I'm going to put that tool back on the toolbox. You don't want it to be I'm at dinner with my family. I'm a little bit bored or I'm a little bit anxious or I'm a little bit whatever and this is going to give me a little hit. And so do that and your personal life is going to have a much better relationship with your tools. Time block plan your working life and it's going to feel as well completely different there.
1: Love it. Concrete stuff for the listeners. You can do this. You can start today with this. So Cal... Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing everything. For the listener, you can grab the action plan. Just go to jimharsherjr.com slash action. Normally, Cal, this is where I put in all your social media links, but you don't have any of those. But can you tell the listeners where they can find you, follow you, uh, find your books, listen to your podcast, etc.? Yeah. Well, well, I do have a podcast,
0: Deep Questions. I do two episodes a week where I basically just answer these type of questions from my readers and listeners. Uh, And then at my website, calnewport.com, you can find about my books, but I've been blogging there since 2007. So if you're interested in reading more about the type of things I like to write about, anything I've ever talked about, you can find some articles at calnewport.com.
1: Lots of value there and everything you just shared there as well as in this episode. So Cal, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Jim, it was my pleasure. And for the listeners, as always, until next time, take the time to get clear on your goals and embrace failure as a stepping stone on your path to success.